Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on today's episode, we'll have a discussion with Annie Mallow and Julie Connolly from Seifarth Shaw. This is a legal firm that assists retailers and others with negotiation of leases and establishment in new locations. It's something that, on the surface, may not appear all that exciting, but it is absolutely crucial to the retail landscape and what retailers do on a go-forward basis. So they'll discuss that entire process. We'll also address overall retail sales news, the fresh market, and a leadership change at Dollar General. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. And coming up next week, we'll be joined by Rod Sides of Deloitte to discuss some back-to-school numbers. So very excited about that. Let's dive right into this week's news as the National Retail Federation came out with sales numbers for June that reflect rising retail sales sequentially. Sales in many categories were down slightly in May, but the slight increase in June and a very large year-over-year increase indicates strength in some categories. According to the NRF's numbers, retail sales were up 0.6% in June versus May, so edging northward on a year-over-year basis, retail sales were up across all categories by 5.8%. Now, the differentiator between the NRF's numbers and the U.S. Census Bureau numbers is that the NRF's retail sales numbers do not include auto sales, gas stations, and restaurants. So basically, any sales of fuel, any sales of automobiles, any sales by restaurants aren't included whereas the U.S. Census Bureau does include those numbers in retail sales numbers. One of the reasons the numbers were so tepid for May at the Census Bureau was because automobile sales were way, way down. But still, when you look at the NRF's numbers, 5.8% year-over-year increase, while that sounds substantial, that still does lag inflation by a little bit. So spending really isn't quite keeping up with inflation, but is still fairly robust. People aren't just putting away their pocketbooks entirely. Categories with the largest increases when you break it down by categories include online peer plays who continue to have some success post-pandemic or really post-pandemic onset in 2020, grocery stores and home improvement stores. So stop me if you've heard this before, but really the categories that have been getting it done over the last couple of years also shining bright in June. Online sales were up 9.6% year-over-year, 2.2% sequentially, so a big jump from May to June. And this indicates that perhaps that digital fatigue that's being discussed out there isn't quite here yet across all categories. We've heard from consumers regarding potential digital fatigue in grocery and other categories, but still, we're seeing that online spend be very healthy and continue to grow even if only slightly versus what we were seeing in 2020 and 2021. Grocery and beverage stores, meanwhile, showed a 7.5% year-over-year increase, only up four-tenths of a percent sequentially, though, as May sales in that category didn't quite tail off as much as other categories. And as spring seasonal sales bled into June, home improvement and garden supply stores were up 6.7% year-over-year, Those were down 0.9% sequentially, though, but that makes sense because May is one of the more robust 
spring seasonal months in terms of sales throughout the country. But also when you look at that particular category, it also reflects continued substantial building materials inflation, something that we saw in terms of pricing of lumber, let's say, that was all over the place in 2021, up, down, and sideways. But now we're seeing pretty consistent inflation in most building material product categories. And a pleasant surprise also, I wanted to mention this because it's something that we've talked about a lot over the past six months. Furniture and home furnishing sales were actually up 4.8% year over year and 1.4% sequentially as the category at least appears on the surface to stave off that anticipated fall in sales despite the pressure on consumers' wallets. We've talked at length about how durable goods sales were expected to fall off with inflation being more impactful in the United States during 2022. We talked about it even on Big Lot's earnings call as their furniture sales are tracking backward, but it's good to see for the retail landscape as a whole, furniture sales, home furnishing sales, still pretty strong and lapping really strong comps from the last couple of years too. It bears mention is that nesting phenomenon we always talk about took hold during pandemic times. Now on the negative side, softness in retail pharmacy front store sales versus last year and lapping difficult comps in electronics stores held the overall numbers back somewhat. Electronics and appliance sales were up at least slightly sequentially, just a tiny bit over May, but they were down 8.7% year over year. Talk about those comps from last year held up a little bit by the stimulus payments that people were receiving, oftentimes spending on larger ticket items. Health and personal care retail, meanwhile, talking about retail pharmacy here, that was down 0.1% sequentially during the course of June. And this is despite an uptick in COVID numbers. So you would think a lot of the over-the-counter medications would be going up in terms of sales. A lot of test kits would be going up in terms of sales. And it was down 0.5% year over year. So not good news for retail pharmacies. Clothing, meanwhile, continues to struggle for traction post-pandemic onset. You're looking at numbers there down 0.4% sequentially up just 0.2% year over year, despite inflationary impacts pushing prices northward in clothing as it has with everything else. So all of this means that people continue to spend on key household categories and they continue to search for values in the marketplace. I think the fact that retail pharmacies are showing some difficulty here and continue to show that difficulty in growing sales perhaps suggests that more and more people are shifting price to the forefront versus convenience and safety. And price never lost the top spot in people's decision-making, at least according to various consumer surveys, but now seems to be a little bit more important versus, say, 2020 and 2021, when people were talking about convenience, the ability to get in and get out quickly, and safety as some major drivers. Now maybe you think twice about going to those retail pharmacies if the prices are somewhat worse than, say, going to a grocer or general merchandiser for some of those convenience items. NRF chief economist Jack Kleinhens was quoted as saying that despite inflation continuing to pose challenges, consumers are, and I quote, holding up notably well and continuing to spend. Now, Kleinhens did say that inflation is eating into excess savings that were collected during the pandemic, and that's kind of countering also any gains in income that you saw during the last couple of years. NRF CEO Matthew Shea 
said that consumers now are prioritizing essentials, something that we've known a bit for the last four to five months. But he cited the essentials as food, energy, and back-to-school items, maybe good for those back-to-school sales over the next couple of months. But in the short term, Shea said that this will not be sufficient to counter increases in pricing. I would, however, take this quote with a grain of salt. There was a bit of political motivation in his prepared remarks as the NRF continues to lobby for decreased tariffs on incoming Chinese goods and other regulatory changes to maybe keep pricing a little bit lower on behalf of retailers. So I think overall positive news in terms of June retail sales, although slightly positive, you continue to see the inflationary impacts, but it does look as though people are continuing to spend as we get into summer and continuing to spend in those retail stores, which is key. Also, big news for digital, I think, up 2.2% sequentially. That is really good news if you're an online pure play that's out there. Now, shifting gears, let's talk about the fresh market just briefly. Just kind of a side note this week, the fresh market withdraws its IPO filing that they had initially submitted, at least preliminary filing, in early 2021. The fresh market was held at the time by Apollo Global Management, or was held entirely by Apollo Global Management. Since that time, Apollo struck a deal with Sencosud out of Chile for a 67% interest in the company. This latest deal, that latest ownership change, was announced two months ago. The original IPO filing, way back in 2021, came around five years after they publicly announced their plans to be taken private. Their first IPO, by the way, their initial one, took place back in November 2010. So you've seen them seesaw back and forth between private, public, and private again. The thought was that they would go back public and and maybe give Apollo some of that return on their initial investment. But that appears to not be the case as they are withdrawing that IPO. There's no specifics as far as the reason for the withdrawal in their message to the FTC, but it's pretty apparent that the new ownership didn't have plans to follow through with that IPO. And what is interesting is that this recent deal with Senkosud, which is $676 million for 67% of the company, that spots the valuation of the fresh market at around $1 billion. When they were initially taken private back in 2016, the deal was valued in total around $1.36 billion, meaning that ultimately... They've lost a decent chunk of their perceived value in the last six years. Part of that is going to have to do with the lower store count. In 2016, they had 186 stores in 27 states. Now, 160 stores in 22 states with a particular focus on the southeast. In fact, they have a major presence where I'm at currently, where I'm recording this episode in Orlando, Florida. In any case, you certainly do wonder what the future holds for the fresh market. Perhaps new ownership will bring in an influx of capital. But even when you look at their wheelhouse markets, Florida would be a great example. Companies like Sprouts are beginning to infringe on that market share that the fresh market once had. Aldi, too, is building larger locations in areas like Florida. They're taking more market share. Aldi just recently built a distribution center in the southeastern United States to service as many as a couple hundred stores. Then you have Publix, which continues to grow, and you're talking about public saturation here. It seems like there's one in every square mile in the Orlando area. You begin to wonder where kind of that potential for growth is for the fresh market and whether even maintenance of current sales is possible 
for them. But this should be a retailer to watch in the near future as we get an idea of Senko Sud's plans as now a majority owner of the company. Well, that'll do it for our news segment for this week. Coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Annie Mallow and Julie Connolly of Seifarth Shaw. They'll talk about what things look like from the attorney's point of view as retailers move into a new space or as retailers expand locations throughout the country. They'll talk about lease negotiations and what that looks like with landlords. And they'll also talk about why sometimes attorneys or lawyers are held in a negative light when realistically they're simply just business partners for all parties involved. We continue our ICSC interview series, and now we switch gears. We're going to talk a little bit about the legal side of retail and retail real estate. And so we're pleased to be joined by a couple of associates from Safarth Shaw to talk a little bit about what exactly goes on behind the scenes in terms of not only a retail real estate transaction, but everything else. So I'm going to hand the mic around. I'm going to have you introduce yourself first and talk a little bit about what you do there at the firm, if we can. Hi, my name is Annie Mallo. And at Seifarth Shaw, we really specialize in volume leasing and expansions into new markets. So we help retail clients expand their footprints into all lower 48 states. And we really focus on data making things affordable, making sure costs and expectations align, that you're not going to be shocked by bill, and expanding in an efficient way. Hi, my name is Julie Connolly. I'm a partner at Seifarth Shaw. And as Annie said, we're a part of a group that does volume leasing. We work with large retail clients, mostly across the country, in expanding their national footprint. And one service and value that I think that we've gotten really good at adding is creating efficiency so that across the board for all of your leases across the nation, you have the same core provisions. And we actually work a lot with the business developers who are, are finding and sourcing these sites to help understand the company's priorities, help them more easily negotiate the LOI, and then have a better, quicker, more efficient lease product. All right, so we talk a little bit about efficiency. We talk a little bit about, for example, crafting the LOI, but what on a day-to-day basis does an eight-to-five day look like for either one of you? Oh, goodness, it looks like the middle of the day because we work many more hours than that. But no, it really is. We can be anything from the start. We help our clients negotiate LOIs because if you have a clean LOI, there are fewer surprises at the lease or at the purchase agreement which means that goes a lot more smoothly. And then we negotiate leases and purchase agreements. So all of the relationship, I always like to say, when we're doing a lease, we're negotiating a relationship, we're negotiating a marriage, because you're tied into it usually for 20 to 30 years. So we're working to find something that works for everybody so that we all like each other 15 years from now. But we work through that and then we go through execution. In a lot of our projects, we work to help the retailer develop the site which means there's usually a permitting period, there's usually variances required, and there's a period of build out. And we are with you through rent commencement. Once the site opens, usually we're not involved terribly much after that, but we get you from signing of LOI through the start of rent and you're operating in the site. 
Yeah, that's right. I think we are there sort of from soup to nuts throughout the negotiation process. And one thing that we really focus on is getting to know our client's business. And because we do a large volume, we really feel like we become sort of an extension of the client. We get to know the deal makers very, very well. And so we really are able to help them at every stage of the deal. And, you know, they call us up and they want to waive their contingencies. They, you know, they want to make sure that they meet certain deadlines. We help them. We have a team of paralegals who help us review title and survey. So we're really very, very involved from LOI stage right until that retail space opens up. I am curious. So when starting the LOI negotiation process, obviously there's some terms you go back and forth on, such as rental rate, things like that. But what are the terms that create the biggest hang up? That is very retailer specific. For, in particular with some of ours, if you have a gas station, environmental is going to be your big hang up. If you have a nationally registered business like a banking institution, you may find that it's still kind of environmental, but it's more asbestos and things that may be in the age of the building. So those really tend to be your specific issues. And then it can really get very, very specific based on what the retailer needs. I have some clients where they need a certain height and roof. And so sometimes the big hang up is negotiating whether we have the right to raise the roof, which is a fun phrase, yeah, or whether the landlord is going to let us raise the roof, but things like that. So it really ends up being retailer specific. But the fun part about what we do is we spend a lot of time with our clients up front. So I know that you need that. I know that you cannot agree to this other issue because federal regulations don't allow it. And so if we can get all of that stuff out front, that knocks out a lot of the fight in the lease because we've already told the landlord what we can and can't agree to up front. So no surprises, that's our real trick. The fewer surprises in the negotiation process, the much smoother it's gonna be. You don't really hide anything is what I've learned over time. Yeah, I feel like we could do a whole series just on LOI negotiation because there are different schools of thought as to how much should be included because on one hand, as Annie mentioned, you don't want to have surprises, right? The things that are really important to you as a client, you want them put on the table up front so that they're not seeing it in the lease and saying, what is this? We didn't agree to this. But at the same time, we don't want to scare people off with a 12-page LOI either, right? The LOI is not the lease, and we don't want, and our clients don't want to spend months negotiating the LOI, which sometimes happens. So it's really trying to find that right balance of making sure that those core terms are in there and that our priorities are met without overlawyering it, so to speak. I think we could talk about that all day, but that's sort of the short version. I like that saying, the LOI is not the lease. It's not the PSA, it's not the lease. But I did want to ask you, you work with a number of tenants who grow very, very quickly. We're talking about very aggressive scaling here in some cases. Why is it important to have someone with a legal background, someone with an attorney-type background, such that there are no surprises? Why is that important for the retailer? The biggest thing we've run into is that your landlord, if you're the retailer looking, your landlord can be anybody from a large national holder who does leases on a daily basis to a gentleman down the street who bought property in the 70s. He still owns it. He's great, but he's not super sophisticated when it comes to what the current market terms are. And so when you have someone on the legal side that can say, this is what's going on and kind of guide, we do find that we end up guiding the deal a lot because we do so many we can have that conversation early on that says, you know, this is what's market. This is really where you're going to end up. And we really work to 
have everybody on the same page. And I think that's when you have somebody doing large scale, us knowing the client, knowing what we can agree to early, that helps us turn a lease much faster because we're not checking in on all of these things that don't matter. It shortens your business issues list from three pages to five or six. It just turns things so much faster. And when we know the client that well, when we can speak to the landlord and the landlord's counsel, knowledgeable about our client without always having to go back to the client, it just makes everyone more comfortable. It makes sure everyone feels like they understand each other. And it just creates a much better relationship. I can give one relatively recent and timely example of that, and that is the force majeure provisions of a lease. And when COVID hit, as many of our, the retailers that we work with, they have due diligence periods where they have a certain, the big one is obviously permitting. So we have this contingency period where we don't actually have a hard deal until we have permits in hand. So COVID came along, government and offices shut down, permits weren't being handed out, people weren't allowed to go to the site to even do the due diligence, and all of a sudden people didn't know what to do with these diligence periods because they were expiring. And does Forest Majeure cover that or not? So we were able to not only advise our clients on that, but our firm had actually set up a whole COVID task force and a specific real estate group of that looked into how can we make sure that our lease, our purchase agreement protects our clients in this situation. And so we put in very specific language that allowed total of those time periods to make sure that our clients had the time they needed to get the permits that they needed to do their due diligence, despite all of the crazy things that were going on in the world. So as you look throughout the landscape of negotiating leases, of companies moving into locations, companies building, outside of your current client base, where do you think there is room for improvement in terms of the industry? We've talked obviously about efficiency, so perhaps that's one, but where else do you look out and see potential for improvement or opportunity out there? For large-scale expansion, it's always going to be in uniformity, and that's kind of something that's changing a lot. The standard used to be that as a retailer, you got landlord's lease. That was the landlord provides the lease. So every time a national retailer moved into a new market, moved into a new building, they were looking at a new 40 to 60 page document. For national retailers, they have the leverage to have their own form. And that's really saving a lot. It puts the important things out there. It also means that if you have repeat, we can turn a repeat lease incredibly quickly. So it encourages long-term relationships between landlords, developers, between retailers, because they know what you're gonna hand them when you draft it. They know what they're getting in the relationship. So really uniformity, and we're seeing this more and more retailers, even current retailers' lease forms are starting to match. And I'm getting them on the landlord side. And when you do that, that uniformity just creates an efficiency that just can't be matched. Yeah, Annie's absolutely right. And to continue the efficiency and consistency piece of it, what we were seeing previously was that the local, you know, as these deal makers were going out, they were hiring local attorneys. So a major national company would be using a dozen or more different law firms that were regionally located. But some of them, sometimes they were using national firms, but they were just using the Austin office or wherever they happened to be expanding. And so what we found was that their leases, even the tenants that had a lease form that they were using as felt they had leverage to start with, their leases in one part of the country looked different than their leases on the other part of the country. And we were dealing with a client where they had different insurance standards in their different leases in different parts of the country. They had different notice 
service provisions, things that should just be consistent. So we were able to work with the client to help them clean up their form, have a consistent form, give them the confidence to know you have leverage, you're a credit tenant. You can push the landlords really hard to use your form and not theirs so that you're getting your form 90, 95% of the time as opposed to having, as Annie said, to be dealing with a new 60-page landlord form that had none of the specific provisions that you needed for your industry. So that's another piece of consistency that I think we do a good job of offering. And to further build on that at Cyfarth. As part of that, we actually do assign teams to clients. So we have a non-billable meeting on a weekly basis where we talk about what language. This provision, people are pushing back on it. How can we as a team respond to this? So that somebody working on a lease in Atlanta and somebody working on a lease in Seattle are still going to have consistent terms. So it solves that problem because our team is constantly in communication and we talk to each other all the time. But we are national, so we do have team members in Seattle, in Houston, that we're all on the same page. And just one more point to add is that Cyfarth also has offices across the country. So to the extent that we need any state-specific provisions or if there are state-specific issues that come up, we do have the resources in most of the national markets across the country to, I think we have people barred in every state. I'm pretty sure we have them, at least the 48 states. So we do have resources if state-specific issues come up. But for the most part, our leases can apply nationally. So you had mentioned giving your clients the confidence to realize they're a national credit tenant, standardizing their leases across the board. So on the options with inflation, have you seen tenants give pushback on their set set of options or pushing harder? I'm just kind of curious because I know a lot of landlords aren't eager for many option periods right now. A lot of the tenants that we work with on a daily basis, they're pretty, I don't want to jinx it by saying recession proof, but we have clients that in the beginning of COVID, for example, when everything was uncertain, we're actually able to take advantage of that market and say, we've got the capital, we're ready to expand and build, we're gonna keep going and rates are low, prices are low. So they were actually renegotiating rent prices and purchase prices down during that time. You're right, things are a little bit more volatile. I feel like it's still pretty new. So I haven't seen a change either in longevity or really in numbers that much yet but it'll be interesting to see because I feel like there's a little bit of a time lag, I think, between just what's been going on with a little bit more uncertainty in the last couple of weeks. So we haven't seen that trickle through yet, but we're curious to see where that's going. Yeah, and more specifically, I'm still seeing kind of the standard market, what I would consider. So your two to 4% annual increases or your 10 to 12% every five year increases. I'm not seeing a ton of volatility in that just yet. Now, the base rates may change, so they may decide, okay, now the market, we're going to start at a lower amount, but your increases are still kind of fairly standard. I really haven't seen any volatility in that. When it comes to the number of options, that's really governed by the state-specific laws. So there are a lot of states in the U.S. that do not allow you to do a lease beyond 30 years. So it may be great to negotiate a 20-year lease with four or five-year extensions, but you can't. So that's why in certain states you're going to see that you have that kind of weird last term where it's four years and six months or something like that. So that's really important just to ask your attorney. Make sure if you're negotiating in a new market. I know that the brokers kind of get moved around, especially in national retailers. So you may be in a new state, a new region to check with your attorney because some of those are, they're not necessarily prohibited by law, but there are a lot more taxes and fee consequences to having longer leases. 
One of the things you mentioned earlier was the fact that you might inherit a retailer and you get a pile of leases from across the country and they all look different because every landlord from the mom and pop to the REIT that runs it has different lease formats. What type of leverage do you feel like retailers might have and what type of dialogue might you have with these landlords about maybe, hey, can we go back, can we revisit this lease, maybe standardize some of the language for the better of both you and the tenant? So if the lease is already signed, unfortunately, you're kind of stuck with it. You might have leverage if you're doing another deal with that landlord. And so that's what we see. A lot of our large national retailers, once you make a partnership with a landlord, if he or she owns more properties in kind of the same area, it's nice to reuse. Repeat landlords, save everybody money, and hopefully you could create a good relationship. But if the lease already exists, most people have already spent their negotiation money. They've already spent their fees. They're going to want that where it is. Really, we try to work on a go-forward basis. So what we do with a lot of our clients is early on in the relationship, we may do three to five deals, get to know the client really, really well, where your pressure points are, what's going on. And then we sit down and actually draft an LOI and a lease form that we like that works for them. And from then on, we really push. And then if your new LOI matches the form of your lease and everybody's on the same page, then that uniformity puts everyone much more in a comfortable position. And so we try to go on a going forward basis, knowing that we may have worked with someone in the past, we may have a different form in the past, but we really encourage uniformity. That really results in you getting your rents on time, you getting everything done on time because we don't have someone in a back office trying to figure out how long we have to respond. We know. Yeah, another efficiency that we found works with some of our larger retail clients is that they use developers and the developers are the ones who actually negotiate the lease with us and then they sell it off to the landowner. In that case, we almost have a form that we use with them. So it's really quick and easy. We put some you know, site-specific stuff in there, but we have very strong relationship with these development groups and that's something that really helps things move along as well. We'll close out on one final question, and this is something I like to ask a lot of people because we have a wide array of interview guests on the show. But from the outside looking in, what do you feel like is maybe the most misunderstood aspect of what you do, the most misunderstood aspect of your profession? I see nodding over there from Julie, so we'll hand the mic to her. Sure. I think, you know, as a lawyer... Lawyers sometimes get a bad rap. I don't know if you've heard, but sometimes that happens. I really see our role as business partners. And one thing that I really love about the team that I work with right now is that everybody from the partner level to even the junior associates and the paralegals, we really try to encourage them to have a business sense and they do. So their job is to really learn the business from a legal perspective with the client, but to make sure that we're doing the balance of protecting the client's interests while helping to get the deal done expeditiously. We don't want to be the holdup. We don't want to be what's delaying the lease or the purchase agreement from moving forward. So, you know, we work very closely with our client. We're constantly checking in about timelines to make sure that we're aligned, that they've got all their internal improvers in place so that we're not doing the deal too quickly, which actually is a thing. And so, you know, I think that we're here to help the deal, not to hinder it. 
and I think that we can do that by knowing our clients' priorities really well, being able to explain in layman's terms some of the legal issues that we face to empower the deal makers to be able to also explain it, saying, you know, we need this provision in here and here's why in plain English. And that just kind of puts everybody at ease and makes our negotiations a lot less contentious most of the time. I agree. I think that's really it. Everyone thinks lawyers argue. That's what we do for a living. And the reality is transactional attorneys like we are, we don't. We are all moving in the same direction. So there is no winner loser. The landlord wants to lease, the tenant wants to lease, a lender wants to lend, and everyone wants to get to the end of it. So we are more the facilitator of the deal. We understand all sides, all the pieces that need to be met by all sides in order to get everyone to the finish line, which is an open unit producing money. And so that's really, I think, the misunderstood part of what we do. There are lawyers that fight for a living. I will tell you, I think we have those in our firm too, but that's the difference with us. What we do is not particularly adversarial. We kind of view it more as a partnership and everyone moving to get to the same goal. Well, that's a great perspective. Julie, Annie, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today, and I hope you have a great rest of your conference. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Annie and Julie for joining us, as well as McKenna Langley, our associate producer on that interview, which was recorded at ICSC. We have one more interview from our ICSC interview series. We're excited to get to that one in a couple of weeks from now. In our looking ahead segment, well, it's as much a looking back segment as anything. As Dollar General announced this past week that Todd Vossos will step down as their CEO He'll be succeeded by Jeffrey Owen, who has been with the company for quite some time, currently head of operations there. But during Vasos's tenure, the company absolutely boomed. You're talking about adding 7,000 more stores during his time at the company. New locations to the tune of four figures every single year and currently occupying the number one space in their particular category. In terms of market share, he did a great job. I'm looking ahead to if Dollar General is going to stay the course under Jeffrey Owen and at what point Mr. Owen decides to maybe tail back their opening plans or tail back their plans for continued retail expansion. They've also done great work recently with renovating older locations. You wonder if Owen will continue that continue on that path. Overall, it's always great if you're an executive to take over at a company that is, as we would say, operating on all cylinders. But at the same time, there can be a lot of pressure there. And you wonder how long growth can persist for a company like Dollar General. So I'm excited to see what Jeffrey Owen has in store for Dollar General. I'm excited to see what adjustments, if any, he will make to the operations team there at Dollar General as well. But congratulations to him for moving up and congratulations for Todd Vasos for a great tenure at Dollar General, a company that has been the poster child for retail expansion over the last 10 years. Well, this will do it for us on the Retail Focus Podcast. A big thanks to Leighton and McKenna for helping out behind the scenes and a big thanks to 
the folks at ICSC for letting us go to that conference in Las Vegas and record so many fascinating interviews. Again, next week we'll be joined by Ron Sides of Deloitte LLP. We'll discuss their most recent back-to-school survey, and we'll dive into the numbers for not only K-12, but also the parents that are shopping for college students as well. We thank you for listening, and we'll be back approximately seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.